0: This morning, I'm going to wrap up this little mini-series, if you will, of the last three sermons that I have preached. They haven't been connected, though. They've been kind of between those guest speakers that we've had. This has been a summer uh, that's a little different than our normal schedule. Uh, Since I've been here, at least, we've had several great guest speakers with us, And, and the last three sermons that I've preached have all actually kind of been connected, but you might not realize the connection to them, the theme that runs through them, unless you're like Sean, who is diligent at taking notes. And so he's looking back and he's like, oh, I see right there the theme over these last three sermons has been readiness. The theme is readiness. And today the message is being ready to go, ready to go. Two, two sermons ago, the very first one I did back before we had our spiritual renewal weekend was from Psalm 85, and I talked about us needing to be ready to receive from God, that he's the one who is the giver of all good things. He is the only one who brings real revival into our lives personally, corporately, and so we wanted to seek God and be ready to receive from him. And then two weeks ago, I said, okay, now, now if we're in a posture of being ready to receive, we also have to really desire and long to be ready for more in our lives. And so from 1 Corinthians 3, we looked at the rebuke of Paul to the complacent church that's in Corinth, right? And he says, hey, you've settled in, you've become comfortable with where you are and what you were doing, and you are really like infants in Christ. And that's not a good thing. That's not a compliment how cute you are. He said, you're not growing, you're not seeking God. And so that rebuke and that call to live more faithfully and more truly as a disciple was what we looked at two Sundays ago. And this morning, I want us to take that theme and kind of bring it to a very personal, tangible application to us here at Nelsonville Assembly and challenge us to be ready to go into the future that God has for us and understand what that will look like. So if you have your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to pick up in the first two verses there, and so I'll give you just a moment to get there. If you don't have your Bible with you, it's on the screen behind me, or you can use one in the, the pew in front of you. Of course, if you don't have a Bible, would love for you to just take that one in the pew there. Let that be our gift to you today. But Hebrews chapter 12, this will be our primary text, but we'll go to a, several other places in the scripture today. So if you have your notebooks or your phones, you might want to write down some other references. Here's what Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 tell us. Therefore, Of God. Now, right up front in that very first part of this text, it, it connects us back to what we talked about. Two weeks ago, right? Two weeks ago when I preached, we we talked a lot about a a different church, a church outside of here, a church in a different point in history. We talked about the church in Northampton, Massachusetts in the late 1600s and early 1700s. And we said, the reason it's, it's good to look back at that church is because they're an example to us. We can draw lessons from looking at that. And that's what this text in Hebrews chapter 12 is making clear to us. It says, there is so great a cloud of witnesses. And of course, this is written right after Hebrews chapter 11, if you're familiar with your Bible, that's the great hall of faith chapter, right, where it's just person after person after person who the author of Hebrews says, these are examples for you to look at and and witnesses that testify to God's power, God's grace, God's work, so look at them and be encouraged, be empowered, be motivated then to live a life of faith yourself, What the text is saying is that because of the examples who have gone before, and in Hebrews 11, we're given some examples, but as a a people living 2,000 years after the time of the New Testament being written, we have many other examples in church history too, right? So that's why I said last week, this is why we can look at another church in another place at another point in time, and we can draw lessons, we can learn from them, because they're a witness to us of what church life looks like. Over a period of time, longer than what you and I will experience, right? We looked at a period of over 100 years, longer than you and I are going to be involved in our church life, and we got to see the ups and the downs and how God worked with those people over that span of time. There's many great things we could unpack along those lines from Hebrews 12.1, but that, that's not the, the theme of the message today. What I want us to focus in on this morning is the encouragement. Really, it's, it's not so much just an encouragement, because that, that can almost be taken a little too softly. It is an imperative. It is a command. It is a, you need to do this, that's found here in the text. In the words of the author, it is that we are told to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Over the, the years that I've been here at Nelsonville, I, I try to regularly return my thoughts to asking and then answering a key question as I pray for this church, as I evaluate what we're doing as a church, as I plan for the future of the church. The key question that I put to myself and then I, I bring the answer out is this. Why does Nelsonville Assembly exist? What is our primary purpose? This is an important question as the pastor of the church for me to keep in mind because it needs to shape and guide what we do as a church. It's not just an important question for me, though. It's an important question for you to ask, too. Why does Nelsonville Assembly exist? Why am I a part of Nelsonville Assembly? What are we doing when we go up there? Is it just a way to drive and use up a little of the expensive, but thankfully not quite as expensive, gas in our cars and spend a couple hours? Or is there something else going on? In Nelsonville. What is the purpose of that church? You know, how we answer this question will shape us. How we answer the question of why we exist, well, it changes things in big and obvious ways and sometimes in small and subtle ways. So let me give you the answer that I bring myself back to over and over again when I ask this question. Here's how I answer the question. It's in the words that we have written out as our church's mission statement. It says this, we exist to make disciples who are growing together in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and are proclaiming his gospel and his glory as their personal mission. That this is our mission statement as a church. And a mission statement, answering the question, why do we exist, is supposed to be a guiding answer, right? So every company that has a mission statement, if they're going to be successful, is going to align what they do with their mission statement. So this is true, for, for example, let's take two different companies as our example. You've got Walmart, whose mission statement is this. We save people money so they can live better. Simple, clear. What's their primary mission? Save people money, right? Now you can take another grocery store though, let's take Whole Foods and look at their mission statement, which is much longer. Whole Foods, they say, is a dynamic leader in the quality food business. We are a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. We are building a business in which high standards permeate all aspects of our company. I wonder how many have memorized the mission statement over at Whole Foods little long. But these missions, even though they're both grocery stores, are totally different from one another, right? So the experience of interacting with those two different organizations is very different. Why do we go to Walmart? Because their value is they're going to save me money, so I get things cheaper there. So I will go to Walmart and I will buy the cheap things and I'll put up with all the frustration of shopping at Walmart. But if you've ever been to Whole Foods, you know their value, nothing in there said anything about having low costs, and there's no low costs at at Whole Foods. They think this is the best shopping experience you can have, these are the best products that you can get, and we're going to charge you an arm and a leg for it. And apparently people say, that's my value too, and I'll go pay all my money for that, right? Both grocery stores, but both very different missions, and so it guides what they do in very different ways, right? As a church, our mission statement is what helps guide us in what it is we are supposed to be doing. Like, you didn't come to church this morning thinking, ah, you know, I didn't get over to town, but it's okay, I'm going up to Nelsonville Assembly, and I'll just pick up my groceries there. You can't shop here, right? We're not a grocery store. It's not part of our mission. We're not here to sell groceries. No, we exist, according to our mission statement, to make disciples. That's the primary purpose of this place. That's why it was built. That's why we're here. That's why we gather, to make disciples. And the reason that that's true is because that's the mission given to every single true church who obeys the words of Jesus. Hopefully, you can think of these words from Jesus. Matthew 28:19 through 20. It's Jesus giving his mission statement to his church. He says, go therefore and, what's the words? Make. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's our mission. From Jesus himself. The one who just before that says, hey, remember, remember, I have all authority over all things in heaven and on earth. I'm in charge of everything. So, what he then says is your mission, my mission, we better obey that because he's the highest authority. Right? The church exists to make disciples. So, That statement, that idea then, is really, really important when we read Hebrews 12.1 that tells us to run with endurance the race that is set before us because the mission that we've been given is what defines the race for us. That's the thing we're supposed to be doing. We're on this race. We're on this mission to make disciples. If we don't keep that in mind and we just come to this text and we say, hey, run the race that is set before us, and we think we get to choose which race we're on, we're going to end up on different races, right? For some people, the, the race is, I'm going to race to gain wealth and success. And so your focus in life becomes your job, your investment, your bank accounts. Some of us say, oh, the race that's set before me is to be prestigious and popular. And so all that you begin to focus on are other people and your relationships and your image that you cultivate. Cultivate. Some people want to run the race to gain happiness or comfort. And so it's all about their hobbies. It's all about their recreational activities. It's all about getting the possessions that we believe will make our lives better in some way. But the Bible says, no, the race that is set before you, Christian, the race that is set before you, church, when you assemble together, is not to get wealth. It's not to be successful. It's not to have prestige or popularity or happiness or comfort. The mission is to go and make disciples. That's why we exist. So knowing that, understanding there's our mission, there's the race that's ahead of us, there's the the track that we're supposed to be on, then we need to think through a further thing, and that's where our shirts come in today. I'm so glad that that you're wearing your shirt today and you've got them. Again, if you don't have one of them, you didn't get one yet, come see me. Come see Malia right after service. We've got some spares. We'll give you them. Hopefully, we've got your size left. We'll get you a shirt today. And I want what these shirts to do is I want them to be more than just a really comfortable t-shirt, which they're very comfortable, aren't they? These are nice. I have a couple. I'm like, yeah, I like to wear those, you know? And I've changed a lot. Malia could testify. When I lived in Springfield, I didn't wear t-shirts unless I had, absolutely had to. I wore polos constantly, all the time. And yeah, you're shaking your head. That's what she did all the time to me. She's like, you're like an old man already, and you're 20. And I'm like, I like my polos. Anyway, now I wear t-shirts. And part of it's because I got comfortable t-shirts. These are great. So My hope, though, is that this t-shirt's more than just a comfortable t-shirt for you. It doesn't just you know, get pulled out every once in a while. I am hoping that you put on this t-shirt, and you look at it, and you remember, hmm, this is supposed to be my identity. This is what I'm supposed to be focused on in my life. These are the markers that will help me know if I'm running the race well or if maybe I've stopped running the race or I've gotten onto a different race altogether. Listen, we're supposed to make disciples, and that's kind of a churchy language, right? It's biblical language, but it's, it's not language that's in our culture in most other things. So if it's kind of a nebulous statement to you, if you're thinking, okay, we're supposed to make disciples, but what is a disciple? How do I make a disciple? How do I know if I've done a good job making a disciple? Here, let me just define what a disciple is for you. A disciple is a follower, someone who's following a certain way, who's learning about Something. A disciple maker then, not, not words we often use, but a disciple maker is just simply someone who's developing someone else to be something or to go a certain way or to do a certain thing. Okay, so if that's our definition, if disciples are just followers or just learners of something and disciple maker is just the person teaching them that thing, well then you understand this morning, right, that you're all disciple makers for something and you're all disciples of something, Discipleship at its core is teaching someone to be or to do something, so you are making disciples right now, and you are being discipled right now, whether you know it or not, whether it's something you should be discipled in or not. Some of us are really great disciple makers when it comes to sports, right? We love sports, so it's easy to talk about sports, So when we get together with people, we want to talk about the game. We want to talk about the stats. We want them to love the thing we love. And so we just naturally talk about it, encourage them, help them grow in it. We're making disciples in that. Some of us, it's our job. We love what we do. We want to talk about what we do and share that information. And and we like to, let's say if you're uh, in construction, right, build things. You want to talk about how to build things and this awesome thing. And you're making a disciple in that conversation as you share that with someone else. Or it could be politics, or it could be farming, or hunting, or teaching, or cooking, or or finance, or any other number of things. Whatever you're passionate about and you share with others, that's disciple-making. So you're making disciples right now. The question is, are you making the kind of disciples that Jesus has in mind when he tells you to go and be a disciple-maker? Are you making a disciple of a person in the things Jesus wants you to actually be most concerned about discipling others in. So we need to be clear not just about our mission to make disciples. We need to know how do we make disciples? What does it look like to make a disciple that is the kind of disciple Jesus has in mind in the task he's given us, the mission he's given us? What are the markers along the race that we are called to run that will help us know we're on the right track, we're headed in the right direction, we're producing the right kind of people? That's why, as a church, we have not just a mission statement, but we have our core values. And we have five of them which are on your shirt. Right around the the image there, you have laid out all five of our core values. And I'm hoping that as you put your shirt on or as you interact with other people and they're reading your shirt, you will be reminded of these things, of these markers that will help you know if you're making the right kind of disciple, if you are being discipled in the areas that really matter. Now, I'm going to take these out of the order in which you will read them around there. And the first thing I want to talk about is that one of our core values, as we just said there, is to be discipleship-driven. And I just want to, to hit on that as I'm talking about what a disciple is, because I want you to recognize you're constantly making disciples. You just need to be intentional to make disciples in the main thing, following and obeying Jesus. No true church can be anything but discipleship-driven if they have the mission that God has given them to make disciples, right? So we need to be intentional. We need to be mindful. This is part of the purpose of your life. And you may think, I'm not a teacher. I wasn't standing up there. I would never, ever get in front of a group of people and try to teach them something. That's not what a disciple-maker is. It doesn't have to be a formal educator. You don't have to be a pastor who stands on a stage, You have people in your life that you're living with, your children, your family members, your friends. Those are the people you get to disciple in a one-on-one way that doesn't have all the formal structure around it. You're still a disciple maker. So we need to see our interactions with others as discipling work and be driven to make the right kind of disciples as we're producing them in our lives. Listen to this text, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he, that's God, or Jesus specifically, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So notice, in this text right here, there's positions listed, right, that God has given to the church. And it includes my position, the pastor or the shepherd and teacher of the church. And the job description for my role is defined here. To equip the, who? saints, for the work of ministry. Listen, the work of making disciples, that's not just given to me as the pastor. In fact, what's given to me as the pastor is actually to equip you for that work of making disciples. I've heard many pastors say, when I got into the ministry, I actually got out of the ministry. What they mean by that is the primary ministry, the primary calling, the primary duty of a Christian is to go and make disciples disciples. And the primary job of a pastor is now to equip you, to resource you, to invest in you, to model before you, to encourage you to go do that ministry. My job is now dominated by interacting with you, equipping you to go do the mission of making new disciples. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 is a text that applies to you, not just to me, right? That great commission, that mission given by Jesus is your mission not just mine. So all of us need to understand we need to be discipleship-driven in our lives, not discipleship-passive. Be driven by the call to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's the mission. That's got to be the marker that's primary in our lives if we are going to run with endurance the race that is set before us. The second value I want to touch on this morning is being Bible-believing, See, this is crucial to our identity as Christians, and it's a crucial foundation if we're going to be able to endure. If we don't hold the Bible firm, if we don't stand firm on the Word of God and truly believe what the Bible says, then I guarantee you, you won't obey the command to endure in the race that is set before you. You are not going to have the strength to go down the path when the path begins to lead uphill into hard terrain into really challenging stretches of our lives in this culture. If you're not rooted on the Bible, if you don't really believe the Bible, you are not going to endure. We have to have a solid belief in the word of God or you'll be led astray. You'll be tempted and lured into compromise by this culture. The verse that I take us back to over and over and over again about the nature and sufficiency of Scripture is 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, Right? All scripture is theonostas, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Listen, that the man of God may be what? Complete, equipped for some, every good work. Like if, if, if we are in the word, you have what you need. You may not be an educator. You may not have walked with Jesus a long time. You may not have a bunch of it memorized. If you get in the word, you have everything you need to be fully equipped for every good work to make disciples and complete the mission given to you. But without the scripture as our foundation, without us knowing and believing and obeying and practicing the word of God, we're not going to be equipped for the race. The manual does no good when you're trying to fix something if you leave it on the shelf. The tools don't help you fix the problem or build the thing in front of you if they're in the toolbox. You have to believe the word of God, which means more than just, yeah, I, I, I affirm whatever that book says over there. I don't know what it says, but sure, I'll go with it. No, you have to be in it. You have to know it. You have to practice it. You have to obey it. So you can endure in the race that is set before us. The third value we have is that we need to cultivate being a praying person individually and as a body becoming a praying church as a whole. So this is the other thing that, that, that's just on the other side of the coin, if you will, or the second pillar right next to being Bible-believing is we have to be praying. Because the reality is we can't accomplish the mission that we have been given. We won't be able to stay on course in the race that we're called to run without divine help. We're too weak. We're too easily distracted. We need to passionately, persistently pray for God to help us with this task that he's given us. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, in the English Standard Version, it says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. I've told you this before, but the Greek word that's translated there as continue steadfastly is the same word that means devotion. Literally, the text is saying, Be devoted to prayer, make it your priority. Don't forget to do it, push into it, engage in it, set it as a standard, go at it, be devoted. Why is that so crucial? Why does Paul say that to us in the book of Colossians? Because Jesus tells his followers this very clearly, no ambiguous terms, Matthew 26, 41. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, for the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. In John 15, he talks over and over again about you need to abide in me, right? Because if you're not connected to me, if you're not abiding in me, you're not in relationship with me, you can do nothing. You won't bear fruit. You won't be of any use. You're going to be cut off, thrown into the fire, consumed and over with. He says, abide in me, because apart from me, you can do nothing. But most of the time, we don't feel like that's true. We get a whole lot of stuff done on our own. I mean, we're Americans. We got our bootstraps and we pulled them up. You know, we're good. We need to learn to feel desperate for God's help so that we begin to ask desperately for God's help. You know, the the way and the time where I pray most easily, most desperately for my sermons is Sunday mornings from 5 to 7.45 because this is right in front of me. I know I'm going to get up here and preach. And what I know is that I'm going to preach the word of God to you. But on my own, I can do nothing. This is just me speaking. The Bible gives the illustration of dead bones. It's like going to the graveyard, speaking to the, to the bodies in the ground and saying, rise up. I can't do that on my own. I can't create a result. I can't even get most of you to like me. <laughs> The task that I'm given is way beyond my ability, and so every Sunday morning when I get up and I go, here's what I've got to do, I say, God, help me. God, do something. I need you to produce any results in these people. I'm not smart enough. I'm not articulate enough. I'm not engaging enough. I'm not Barry. I don't run from one side of the stage to another. Listen, if we don't pray, we won't endure. If we don't pray, we won't bear fruit. If we don't stand firm on the foundation of the Bible, we won't endure. You can't change these two things. They're the constant for every Christian. You may feel like, I'm not much of a reader. Well, you need to be a reader of the Bible. I'm not much of a a prayer. You need to be. If you don't have these two things in your life, there's not going to be endurance. There's not going to be success in the race that you are called to run, the race that is set before us. The fourth value is this. We need to be family-focused. This is one of our core values that I, I, I need to really make sure we're defining intentionally, and, and, and the way that the Bible would define being family-focused, not the way our culture would define being family-focused. When I say, as a church and as a people, we need to be family-focused, what I'm not saying is that you need to be really, really, really focused on your physical family, what I'm saying is that you need to learn to live and see the brothers and sisters around you, the family of God around you, as your true family. I know, we'll get, we'll get a little personal here. I know this is an area of struggle for some of you a lot more than it is for others. Because some of you have had the great gift of having your physical family near you for most of your life. They live around you. They go to the same activities and events as you. Many of you grew up in the same church for a lot of your life with family members. So for you, it's going to be a lot harder to live out a biblical version of being family-focused. Some of us, we don't have that gift. So we've had to work through this a little earlier. That doesn't mean we've got it all together. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying for some of us, following Jesus has meant pretty immediately we had to give up being close to family. To go where Jesus wanted us to go meant to leave the physical family behind. So we, we have had to work through that and understand that sacrifice maybe a little earlier than some of you who have been gifted and blessed. Family's a good thing, don't get me wrong. But if that's you, I want you to hear what Jesus has to say about understanding who your family as a Christian really is. Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50. Write it down, look it up later if you want to meditate on this passage. It says this. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who had told him, saying, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, Jesus said, here are my my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I get it. That's a hard thing to think about. Jesus is saying, you need to look at the family of God as your true family. Over and above the physical family. And physical families, they're good, they can be a gift, but listen, they're not ultimate. It's the Mormons who teach you that your physical family is eternal. That's not a Christian belief. Whatever family you have been gifted with in this life, it's a temporary assignment. It's a stewardship that you have for right now, but when we get to eternity, you don't get to cloister up with here's my clan of people, here's my physical family. No. Nope. You're brought into the family of God. That's our true family. That's our eternal family. That's the people you're going to spend forever with. So as a church, we want to be family focused. And practically, that means we want to recognize that, that, hey, we've got lots of kids here, we've got lots of people in different life stages here, and we want everyone to feel welcome and everyone to feel brought in to this family. Like, everyone has a place here. And we want people to see that because what binds us together isn't bloodlines and it isn't last names. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're a believer in him, you're a brother. You're a sister here with everyone else. And you now become more important to me because of your relationship with Jesus than anyone else. This is our true family. We don't want to idolize the temporary gifts that God's given us and miss Out on the eternity that God is calling us to. Moving to our fifth value, and we're getting towards the end of our time this morning, it's the one at the very top of the crest on your shirt. It's the one that everyone's gonna immediately see first and foremost when they look at you wearing this shirt, and it says that we are to be Christ-centered because that's the heart of all of this. If we go back to that text in Hebrews chapter 12, this is the very centering point that the author gives us in that text too, Right? Look at the text again if it's still in front of you. Let us run, we'll pick up there, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This really, he really is the key to everything. Listen, if Jesus is not the center if he is not the one we want to keep our eyes focused upon, if it's not about his work and his accomplishments that have our hope truly stored up in those things, then you're going to fail at everything else. He's got to be the center. You will get distracted. You will veer off course. You will lose faith. You will stumble. You will not accomplish the mission and finish the race that we have been given if Jesus is not the center. We must look to Jesus Because Jesus is the one who has perfectly done what we cannot do. We must look to Jesus because it's Jesus who's the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who's given it to you. He's the one who will bring it to completion in you. Look to him, not to yourself, not to anyone else. We need to look to Jesus because the text says, He is the one who went and endured the cross, suffering the death in the place of his people so that you and I could attain forgiveness for our many, many, many failures that we have in our past that we are going to have in our future. Look to him. Look to Jesus. Because it's only by seeing and understanding his finished work that we will be able to endure to the end. It's only in looking to him that we will gain the strength, the motivation, the ability to live out these values and run the race set before us, accomplish the mission of making healthy disciples, biblical disciples who follow Jesus. Looking to Jesus is the only thing that can transform a life. On our own, we will fail to remember, much less live out these values and this mission that we have. On our own, we will get distracted. We will not run the race that we should. We will grow weary. We will shift our focus to lesser things. But like I said two weeks ago, the, the pinnacle thought of all of Jonathan Edwards' massive theological work is this. When you see who Jesus is, when you understand how glorious His message is, When you understand that Jesus is the one who's created all things, the one who holds all things together, the one for whom all things exist, and yet he's not far away, he's not remote. He is the one who sees you. He is the one who walks with you. He is the one who will meet you in your deepest, darkest need. He is the one who will change you. He is the one whose power can make you move from a person who's captivated to anger, to lust, to gossip, whatever it is, to someone free of those things. He is the one by his glory, his grace, who can accomplish anything. When you see him that way, when you follow him, you can experience true life change. Nothing else is going to do it. I could give you book after book after book. I have hundreds of books, if not thousands of books in my library. I know I have over 7,000 books on my computer in my Bible software. I can give you all kinds of books. They're not going to change your life. Only Jesus can. So we need to be centered on Christ. As the worship team comes to lead us in our final song, we have an opportunity to just step into that posture today of centering, focusing, looking to Jesus. My prayer for today has been and is right now that you would look to Jesus. You would focus on him. If you've been in this church for a while, then you know the story of the gospel. You've heard time and time again how glorious he is. And if you have questions about that, if you don't know Jesus in that way, come talk to me. I would love, love to share with you who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how you can experience salvation. My prayer is that today what Jesus would do is he would make us ready to go, ready to run the race that is set before us, to go be disciple makers. Discipling in the things that matter. Focused upon Christ. Foundational, foundationally built upon the word of God. Committed to prayer. Maybe, maybe today you're thinking, man, that's the hard one for me, it's prayer. Then here's a few moments for you to pray. Most of the kids are even out of the room right now, so distractions are minimal, right? <laughs> maybe you need to come to the altar and just pray, Lord, help me be more focused on these things. Help me be more centered on you. The altars are open for any need, every single need you have. I'd love nothing more than to get to pray with you today. We're going to take just a few moments to respond, to be made ready for the race that lies before us. Let's respond to the Lord this morning.